Today on the Real Clear Defense podcast, Hot Wash, RCD editor David Craig looks at competing with China's military on the technology front. The U.S. military has long enjoyed dominance in its ability to leverage connected communications and data for its warfighters. But peer competitors like China could challenge the U.S. in crucial areas like advanced computing and artificial intelligence. The Defense Department's Joint All-Domain Command and Control Project, or JADC2, is an ambitious attempt to integrate data, sensors, weapons, platforms, and communication across all services and domains. The number of unique devices and protocols that need to be connected is staggering. What will it take to create a network of networks, and will it help win the tech war with China? To find out, we are joined by Daniel Garay, Senior Vice President with the Lexington Institute. He served as the Director of the Office of Strategic Competitiveness in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and most recently is the author of an article for 1945, The Undeclared U.S.-China Technology War. That's today on Hot Wash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash podcast. Today, we have the good fortune of having Dr. Daniel Garay, Senior Vice President at Lexington Institute. And today, the topic is, you wrote an excellent article for 1945 about the technology be- war between the United States and China. And I thought I would start it off for you to follow with just the note, because I think we've both been following this situation for a long time. I mean, this war is probably good. I was just thinking before we talked. Uh, it's probably been going on since China's entry into the WTO and even somewhat before that, I would say, maybe. But the first question I would have for you is what is the most persistent and near-term threat that you think is part of this sort of tech war between the U.S. and China? Well, the most persistent and, in fact, dangerous piece of this tech war is the Chinese effort and really the ability to gain access to U.S. technology. We have been in the lead for years, whether it was on manufacturing technology, uh, design technology, certainly in IT. And over a period of years, through a combination of sending their people to schools here in the United States, and then they're going home, to acquiring U.S. companies, we're very liberal in allowing them, the Chinese companies, which we treat as private, even though they're not, to acquire U.S. companies and hence their IP, their intellectual property, and then theft. You know, by some estimates, we can, we're losing as much as uh, half a trillion dollars a year in value due to Chinese uh, hacking primarily, but also literally physical espionage. Uh, by Chinese agents. And so that tends to be the thing which is most dramatic because that has the potential to truly shift this tech war in China's favor without them having to go through all the efforts that we are going through, whether it's on the government side or the private side. It's In a way, it's sort of reminiscent of what happened during the collapse of the Soviet Union when Reagan bankrupted the Soviet Union with the buildup in Europe. And the Russians, or I guess Soviets at the time, realized that investing in cyber would be a low-cost but potentially high-yield investment for them. So they initially, of course, for quite some time, had been the, the greatest cyber adversary. So how close do you think China is in 
surpassing Russia in their technical capabilities for cyber warfare? I think that given their investment in related technologies, artificial intelligence, autonomy, microelectronics, 5G, that they are probably ahead of China. I mean, it's ahead of Russia, rather. I'm sorry. They're probably ahead of Russia. They're probably ahead of everybody. This is not only a function of their simple ability to put a lot of people and a lot of smart people and trained people into this area, but their ability also to use the most advanced technology. They've got the money. They've got the people. They've got the education. They've got better access to us, to the West, really, and its technology than Russia does. Uh, and they've got the plan, which it's not clear that the, Ch- that the Russians really have the same kind of plan to be dominant, but the Chinese have, and they're pursuing it rigorously and doggedly. Right. And we kind of, we really kind of don't know how good their actual physical equipment are, you know, like their new carrier, the reverse engineer carrier, um, and these other things. But like you said, as compared to Russia, they have the capital to be doing this, that Rus- Russia doesn't obviously. And then the counter for it that you bring up in your article is potentially for the United States is the joint all domain command and control. But, you know, most of the recent reporting makes it seem like we're really struggling with that. Um, Can you elaborate on where JADC2 stands and, and where you think it's going? If we're going to take advantage of the modern technology, including AI, including all the sensor technology, you have to find a way of gathering all that information, processing it, and moving it extremely rapidly with high fidelity. And you have to do it across the typical barriers. So for what they call JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, the idea here is to be able to cross the various service boundaries, which are prop, or the various functional boundaries within the military and including the intelligence community and including open source intelligence so that essentially you can get the kind of information and make use of it in real time. You're having essentially what you might call God's eye view of the battlefield, uh, be able to watch things happening well before a war actually starts and all the lead up to know which uh, indicators are relevant. You know, what's the thing that really tells you that, for example, the Russians are about to were about to invade uh, Ukraine? Uh, and to do that without relying simply on photography, then be able to respond in the opening minutes and even seconds of a conflict across an entire entire theater, connecting the best sensor that's out there to the best shooter, and to do that essentially almost automatically. I mean, there'll be a human in the loop, but at a speeds. Uh, that are fractions of a minute, whereas now we do things in hours to days to weeks. And how much of the JAD, the JADC2, as you say, is reliant on the cloud system that still hasn't reached <laughs> a final contract, which I guess lately the it's looking like it might be some sort of mix up between Microsoft and Amazon Web Services, but I mean, a lot of it's going to be dependent on that as well, isn't it? Well, one of the real challenges you have is what are the systems and really the standards and protocols you use for gathering, holding, exploiting, and moving the data. And it has to be in such a way that you can do it seamlessly. You can't spend time doing translations of data in one format to another or have uh, 
uh, limited access because you can go, you can get access to one server, but not another. Uh, the way we have tended to do it all, all in, in our wars, including the recent conflicts, is you will literally sit a terminal that has access to one cloud next to the terminal with access to the other cloud, and one or two analysts will literally go back and forth physically going, I see that over there. What do you see over here? Uh, I'm going to transmit it to you verbally or on a piece of paper. You've got to get away from that. And the, that we can do a lot of that in the commercial world. Uh, so, you know, using commercial technologies, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, as you said, Oracle, uh, Snowflake, a lot of these company, U.S. companies are just remarkable in their ability to set up clouds, exploit clouds, put apps on clouds, all the rest. But it's really a matter of culture, a matter of policy, a matter of setting standards. And the question is going to be whether JADC2 sets the overall standards, set the overall protocols, so that even if the Air Force has one cloud set up by one company and the Navy has another and the Army has a third, they're going to be able to share the data and move the information from unclassified open source all the way up to the highest classifications. And that's a real challenge. Well, you know, a good example of that, too, is uh, there was a report that came out today about Starlink that Elon Musk had shared with the Ukrainians and a defense official being almost stunned by their ability to adapt in real time to counter Russia. And, you know, I think he's just jealous, you know, that <laughs> the, the Department of Defense is just incapable of, of doing something like that. Well, this is why the tech war that uh, I wrote about that you referred to is really between private companies. The government can support them, their government, our government, or can pr have contracts with them. But this is being done by the private sector. So Starlink is a private operation by Elon Musk. Uh, and it's remarkably successful, but it's the kind of thing which he did despite all the uh, graybeards and wise men saying it couldn't be done, it wouldn't work, it wouldn't be secure, it wouldn't be safe, it wouldn't be economical. And it's all of those things. He did the same thing, by the way, with SpaceX, right? right. It couldn't happen. It wasn't going to work. He'd blow up satellites. He'd blow up launchers. Not a case at all. So the same thing, you know, cloud computing, that was an invention of private companies, AWS, Amazon Web Services came about because Amazon needed a better system than existed for managing all of their packages and, and the, right. the orders. And so, and so they invented this thing. So uh, it's, it's remarkable what the private sector can do. The government can't do this. It is so far behind now. It may have invented the Internet, but it hasn't invented much since. And we have to essentially exploit our companies and beat the Chinese who are going to exploit, the Chinese government at least, who's going to be exploiting their companies. And I mean, even today, each of the services have different contracts for their IT support. Yep. I mean, how how does JADC2 overcome that? Well, you you can't mandate, well, it turns out, we tried to do that with Jedi, quite frankly. You cannot mandate a single cloud. You cannot, you know, one right. ring to rule them all kind of thing. Right. What you can do, though, is work the scenes. You can work to set the standards, the data standards, the protocols, how you treat classified information so that you can cross the boundaries. Navy can have one, Air Force, the intelligence community can have its. But when it comes to sharing, which is the issue, sharing the information, right? It's like doing it. The military talks about doing it the way that we do on, on, uh, on uh, personal cell phones, right? It doesn't matter which phone you've got, doesn't matter which 
uh, company you you uh, you go with. I can talk to anybody, it, not just in the United States, globally on this concept. You want that. It may be an Android. It may be an iPhone. It may be AT&T. It may be somebody else, T-Mobile. But it all works. That's what you want in a JADC2. Somebody will have an iPhone. Somebody will have something else. Somebody will have AT&T or the Navy system, the Air Force system. But they'll at least be able to talk to each other, share pictures, share the data. Now, in your article, you also talk about, I mean, we've already covered the AI and, and some of the cyber and 5G. But uh, somewhat enigmatic to most people is quantum computing. Can you sort of describe that threat and how we plan to counter it, so to speak? Well, you know, the funny thing is, like a lot of this, the only way to counter the threat, if you want to call it that, is by becoming better at it than the other guy, right? Right. You have to be really <laughs> good at hacking to know how to do cybersecurity. You have to be the best at AI to know how to counter it. Same thing in quantum computing. This is advanced computing using essentially quantum bits. So it's, it's not only faster, but you can do levels of computation you could never do with existing uh, uh, hardware and software. It allows you to essentially have unbreakable codes. It would allow you to, for example, have Bitcoin-style transactions that nobody can hack. So you wouldn't have the problem of North Korea coming in and you know stealing $60 million worth of, of Bitcoins from people. Couldn't happen in a quantum universe. It also means you can move data. You know, we, we talk about large data sets. I mean, when you're in the military and you're looking at a whole battlefield, you know, Ukraine, a lot of information there, our side, there, or the Ukrainian side, the Russian side. In fact, in some cases, our side. What is our stuff moving into Ukraine? Where are our people? To manage all that in time, in the time you need to make an informed decision is incredibly challenging with existing technology. Just, just the data, it just becomes a heavy weight. You with quantum computing, you can get around all that. The other thing about quantum computing is you can use that and AI, tie them together to essentially counter the hacker. You can watch networks, you can watch computers, you can watch systems and know when anomalies are happening. The AI will tell you, nah, that's a weird bit that just floated by or that's a weird piece of software that just came around. We've been checking the software forever and ever and ever and this is somebody added something. Now you know it's a hacking attempt coming on. So you really gotta be good at quantum and AI and all the rest in order to counter it. Right. And how, how are we coming along as far as like data transmission? Because, for example, when I was in Afghanistan, if we ever got on the high side, we immediately decided not to even bother because of the time, because of the sat link it was just too slow. You know, I'm sure other people had better systems to do that with when we were over there. But I mean, that's something that to me would be of concern. And it isn't necessarily fixed by AI or quantum computing, per se. No, but you have the effort by, by Space Command, the Space Force, to actually put in place a distributed satellite network based upon laser communications. That will speed the process and increase the bandwidth uh, by volumes. I mean, just hugely. Once you can do that, right, you're, and, and have the, the connectivity from your ground station, so you're always getting the satellite, the messages are going back and forth, they're cross-linking. You can literally do at a global scale uh, the kind of conversation we're having here now, but you know, to, you, you'll have a Zoom call of, of, of you know, 100,000 soldiers all around the world in this kind of situation. That's what you're looking for when you combine the technologies we've been talking about and access to high volume, laser-based probably, space comms. Yeah, and that's, I think that's been 
almost overlooked recently because we've had a couple of successful tests with the laser communications from satellites, right? We have. There's some really interesting stuff going on. We're also sending – NASA's doing some really good stuff, sending some satellites with laser comms way out into space and being able to get the data back so you use less power. You have more accuracy in the data, larger amounts of data coming back. You know, you could also use satellites, obviously laser systems for surveillance, not the same systems. The comms are are their own system, but you can get really high quality data. And once you do it with distributed sensors and distributed communications, you're going to be able to operate at speeds, at levels with confidence in a way we just can't do it now without taking days and weeks to process the information. So... Do you see the JADC or JADC2 as being sort of an incremental implementation to where we kind of just get our, you know, start to walk and run until we get everything online that would be necessary to uh, bring all the surfaces online, so to speak? You know, I, I think it's it's not only going to be incremental services are doing their own things. You've got the airborne battle management system for the Air Force. You've got Project Convergence, which is really not just comms uh, for for the for the Army. Everybody's doing their own thing. JADC2, it's not clear if it's going to have its own cloud, its own network, its own bandwidth, or if it's going to just be uh, a directive kind of approach, standard setting kind of approach. We don't know quite yet. Uh, I think the other problem is the technology moves so fast and government, particularly DOD, has real problems in in moving fast enough, having the contracting to move fast enough to keep up with this, that you're always going to have some ahead, some behind. So the game is to really work the seams, find ways, including hardware as well as software, to translate so I can communicate from one system to another, I can take Link 16, which most a lot of your listeners will know about, which is right. our Air Force comm system, and I can I can now make that universal by having a translator to other systems, so F-35s can talk to F-22s to talk to whatever else, uh, and not worry about what's actually on the F-35 or on the ground or wherever. So I don't have to change everything out. The problem is this is going to be so big, you can't change – if we started today – to say it's going to be this piece of hardware and this set of software, you would get a small percentage of the system changed out before it became obsolete. So the only way this is really going to work is if you have essentially standard setting and a translation mechanism between different comms, different clouds, different networks, and allow essentially a thousand flowers to bloom, but in a garden or an arboretum, if you want to call it that, that you manage overall. Now, is this even going to be possible with the current regulations at DOD for contracting IT? Or is it going to require Congress <laughs> to rewrite some of that for something? You know, an example I, that comes to mind is, I don't know how the contract for Palantir was written, but it was kind of open-ended to a certain <coughs> extent to where they adapted to what we needed and had people in the field with us to make improvements continuously. And that's what I foresee being required for something like JADC2. But for such a large program, unless Congress figures out a better way to write the requirements for contracting, it's going to be incredibly difficult, isn't it? 
you, um, you can't do it the way we've done contracts for hardware, contracts for supplies or ammunition or fuel or whatever, where you bid it out and you write the, you know, it takes two years before you get the new contract or in some cases a year before you even get the mod on to have something done. This has got to be done in a way, open-ended is the word you used. I would say, you know, it, it may be that we go to uh, a system where a lot of the comms are contractor owned and contractor operated. You have, uh, performance-based standards. You've got to give me so much connectivity, so much bandwidth, so much storage capacity. Uh, and if you can make it faster, better, cheaper, go for it. Uh, and you, you'll have multiple contracts. So you can do it where if Amazon can give you the faster, better, cheaper, you go with them. If Microsoft can do it, you go with them. And you, you will be keep changing this around. Again, standards. And by the way, who sets the standards? You want to talk about the, the, the tech war. If we're going to do this, then it's got to be our standards done by our companies because they're ahead of the game and they're not being constrained rather than having it done by Chinese companies <laughs> where the Chinese government sets the standards. Right. <clears throat> so it's it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a long haul, it sounds like, for JAD, or JADC2 to really come online then. We've been working on this kind of thing at, at the sort of small box level, whether it's the services or components or for what, you know, 15 years already. Well, and we're barely right. there. Right. We, we still got people using old IBM, you know, kind of almost analog machines, the old mainframes. Right. right. We're still, we, we got companies making millions of dollars uh, maintaining old mainframes while the rest of the, of the world moved on. Making that change technically is really hard. Getting everybody uh, to a new standard, a new system, new way of operating is extraordinarily hard. It isn't going to be done quickly. That's one of the, and that may be good because it allows for a lot of variation as long as you don't cause stovepipes. It just dawned on me as we were talking about this that would you say that perhaps this effort should be a higher priority than like hypersonics. And the reason I say that is one of our ways of combating nukes is what they call, you know, the left of launch mm -hmm. where you disable an adversary's ability to even launch the uh, nuke. And something similar for, you know, could be conceived for JADC2. You know, if it's successful, sure. we could, uh, we could potentially negate someone's opportunity to even, launch a hypersonic weapon of some kind, which seems like it could potentially more valuable than ha actually having a hypersonic weapon, I guess. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, it may be the best defense against a hypersonic is not some kind of even faster defensive missile, but the ability to spot the, the effort to raise the tail or bring the weapon out of its shelter or whatever. Left of launch is really interesting, not because you necessarily have to attack whatever you're watching, but because that gives you the knowledge that allows you to respond. Uh, doing that real-time globally is a huge enterprise, kind of thing we're talking about. It is going to take a lot of satellites, comms, computing, you name it. And then to get the information spread to all the people who have to have it, that's really one of those IT, AI challenges of the 21st century for the U.S. military. Now, the last topic I want to talk about is disruptive technology. It's something I think we talked about in mm -hmm. grad school when <laughs> I went at the DIA. Um, and one of them, and I'll let you expound on this, but I just wanted to bring up the West, the US, UK, and I, you probably know more about this than I do actually, but are terribly close to nuclear fusion. 
And, you know, it just strikes me that if we ever get this, that is an incredibly disruptive technology because it, it's scalable more so than nuclear fission. Mm-hmm. I mean, potentially you yeah. could have cars running on nuclear <laughs> fusion. Yeah. Um, can you expound on on some of those things that we might see in the future that would be of threat and we should be focusing on? Uh, well, when you sort of think about what's out there and who's out there, and the Chinese have, have sort of pulled in on this advanced energy and energetics. Uh, by the way, they lead in producing you know the basis for a lot of modern explosives. Just as, a, as an offhand kind of comment. So we're behind in things that are much more prosaic than AI or, or virtual reality or whatever. Uh, energy, if you can find a way of freeing you up from the tyranny of modern energy, whether it's green or, or fossil fuel, whatever, that is that is huge. I mean, you will jumpstart an entire economy, an entire world. Uh, it may be more important in some respects for a global economy than it may be actually for the military, which still may operate you know, pretty much according to a lot of the existing a class of technology. The other one, Chinese are working on this too, biotech. We are just, and this ties into things like AI. If you can essentially not only get the entire human genome, but figure out all those processes for what causes aging, what causes cancer, what raises IQs, whatever, you can transform human beings. You can transform how, how the human being lives, uh, how they operate, how they think even. So that's going to be absolutely huge and is going to be driven by advances in computing and cloud and all the rest as well, but have its own uh, directionality, if you want to call it that. That will change life as we know it, as well as national security as we understand it. Right. Well, to wrap it up, Dr. Gray, the one thing I take away from our conversation and somewhat in your article is that it seems as though if if that JADC2 needs to be a higher priority for it to become successful and, and in a timely manner to counter the threats that we're facing from China because they're going to be there pretty quick, whereas we're still kind of stumbling through the whole contracting and other things. But if it were raised to a higher level of priority, perhaps we could get there quicker, don't you? This is the kind of thing, like the decision to go with nuclear weapons, like creating cruise missiles, like unmanned vehicles. It has to have the most senior, sustained leadership that says, go and beat the Chinese by investing in AI, by investing in satellites, by investing in, in, in networking in 5G, US 5G, and thereby beating them. And by the way, into that context, not allowing things like antitrust legislation from the Congress to hold back this effort. It's too important to national security to allow uh, Bush League antitrust efforts to compromise national security. So it almost needs to be a Manhattan Project type event. Certainly in terms of support, in terms of funding, but in terms of calling it out so everybody understands this is what we're going to do and we're serious about it and we'll go after it with everything we have. Because like you said in your article, the best way to combat China's ability to do these things is to have a better capability of our own, and that would be this investment in JADC2, right? The investment in JADC2, and particularly all the underlying technologies that right. go with it. It's right. the best defense as well as the best offense. Well, and it's going to be necessary with all these unmanned, yep. you know, like Task Force 59 for the Navy, where they're testing all these unmanned yep. uh, vessels. I mean, the future, in fact, they're 
they're budgeting for an unmanned fleet of sorts right yes. now. They're um, beginning to do that. And it's going to I mean, all we'll have unmanned all over the place. We'll probably, you know, it's like the Roomba, but we'll have it in the military and they will do serious work. And to make them reliable, that takes a real effort. And it's going to take an effective J- JADC2 system to support it, right? It will take effective systems at all levels. The, the unit has to have it, the service has to, or the component, the service has to have it. And then you need that overarching JADC2 in order to make sure that you can control all those disparate elements and head them all in the right direction. So I'll leave it to you for the, the final parting thought. Is there anything that you want to pass along to our readers in terms of this tech war? That's going to be ongoing for <laughs> infinity, potentially, with China, it seems. Well, the tech war is probably going to be going for a very long time, but we're really at the cutting edge. There have been U.S. Uh, experts, people at DOD, who basically said, if we don't win this thing now, if we don't get out ahead of it, uh, we're going to be – it's going to be over. And we'll not only have lost, but have no way back into the game in the next, in the next after the next 10 years. So we've got a limited window. We got to get serious about this, and that means everybody—Congress, DoD, the White House, private industry—have all got to collaborate on this if we're going to stay, even much less get ahead of the Chinese. And there's no way to be safe, and there's no way to be economically prosperous, and there's no way to be secure at home, frankly, unless we beat the Chinese at this. Well, Dr. Gray, thank you so much for your time today and for highlighting such an important topic for our national security. Um, It was a real pleasure to have you on, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon in the near future. It was my pleasure, too. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For Real Clear Defense Editor David Craig and everyone here at Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.